last day in Petrero, we decided to go big. For me, climbing doesn't feel right until you give it your all. So we decided to do three routes in one day. Everything went great. It was just pure movement over stone, followed by rappelling the climb to get back where you started. 2,000 feet and 20 rappels into the day, we were on cruise control, fatigued from the climbing and subsisting on nothing but sugary Mexican snacks when darkness overcame us. Scott was about 60 feet below me at a rappel station when I heard him calmly shout, Hey, so there's a rattlesnake down here, a baby rattlesnake, and it just rattled at me. Welcome to episode 10 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and as we are for this entire season, we're continuing on with my 2016 memoir, American Climber. And this season of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast is brought to you by Sticker Art. You can find Sticker Art at stickerart.com. Every sticker that they produce tells a story. And you can get 20% off your order by typing in Dirtbag as the coupon code at checkout. You can support this podcast by subscribing to The Climbing Zine or contributing to our Patreon account. And you can do that for as little as a dollar a month. And all that information is in our show notes. And without further ado, for the climbers, for the dirtbags, and for the people who want to be dirtbag climbers, let's get into episode 10. Dave and I didn't speak for a while, not out of anger towards one another, but for indifference at the situation. We were supposed to be celebrating on the rim, with the darkness below, but instead we drank nothing. Our water was gone, and we were one with the darkness. The ledge was just enough to sit upon, nothing else. We started to shiver and huddled together, wrapping the rope around us for some protection. We were too cold and uncomfortable to sleep. An eternity went by and then another eternity. We checked our watch for time, and we were always disappointed. We talked about what we wanted. We wanted food and water and a woman to hold for warmth. We rubbed each other's shoulders, trying to keep warm. We were cold, on the verge of dangerous cold. I thought of my girlfriend, Christina. I longed to hold her tight. She was my first real girlfriend, since Cherise. She picked me up hitchhiking one day from Gunnison to Crested Butte, but it wasn't until a year later that I would run into her again. She was the first person I'd told my story to. I'd always felt ashamed and embarrassed. She understood, and upon telling her the story, I was a little freer, unchained. I felt a tremendous fear, but it was an imagined fear. She didn't like me any less, and maybe she felt me telling her brought us closer together. Why does depression make us feel so alone? In the middle of the night, Jean dropped his headlamp. It fell 20 feet down the rock, and we could see it, but there was no way we could get it. Somehow I'd packed an extra, tiny headlamp that we could use for the rest of the night. We waited and waited, and lifetime seemed to pass by. When that sun hit us, it was the most glorious feeling in the world. We greeted the sun as our god. It blessed us with warmth, and we forced ourselves to soldier on. Climbing should be like this, I knew then and forever, for you should have to suffer for your dreams. You should have to prove to your dreams that you are worthy. Some dreams, like climbing dreams, often demand lives. They demand that young men and women are killed in their prime. Such dangerous dreams do we have as climbers. 
On day one, I was the weak link. I took too long on my leads and was unable to perform on others. On day two, I had some chance at redemption. Jean was feeling extremely dehydrated and requested that I lead. I obliged, and I felt like I was climbing for the both of us. You always are in a partnership, but this day felt different. This felt like survival climbing, which I guess the activity of climbing has its roots in survival. The second lead of the day involved a traverse with over a thousand feet of air beneath my shoes. I was feeling it out, discovering how the holds felt and the best way to lean on them. On those leads, I think I discovered that I was truly a climber because I didn't hate it. So much had gone wrong. We were out of food and water and my body felt terrible. But in this moment, upward for survival, somehow there was a great divine purpose. Jean felt worse and worse and was depending on me more and more, which somehow made me feel better. We moved at a snail's place up the wall as it became more and more fractured near the top. And finally, it was over. We craved water more than anything. Then we drank the sky. It was so blue and we felt blessed to be alive. It was a privilege to suffer. We knew that then. Soon, I had what I wished for more than anything in the world while freezing and starving on that ledge throughout the night. Food, water, and a woman. That night I held Christina tightly. Under the cover of blankets and love, a journey had been completed, and the magic of the Black Canyon was alive in my heart. True climbing encourages bravery and induces suffering. It's at the heart of the endeavor, and all seasoned climbers recognize this. For most of us, it gives us a foundation of who we are, builds our character, and gives us life philosophies. For most of the time, climbing was never mainstream. Then starting with sport climbing, gyms, and bouldering, climbing reached more and more people. It reached me as a hopeless kid growing up in the flatlands. Fortunately, I landed in Gunnison, where a hierarchy in the climbing culture was basically non-existent. That's a good thing. All climbers being created equal. Sure, we're not equal in terms of ability, but no one was going to think or act like they were better than you simply because they climbed higher and harder. There was a spiritual flair to it, and that was what appealed to me the most. The greater climbing scene could be weird. Climbing, no matter how mainstream it gets, will always have the weirdos, good or bad. Visit any crowded climbing area and you're bound to find some weird. The current state of climbing is a sport trying to find its identity. All hope is not lost, though. Once you become a competent climber, you realize there's an abundance of rock in which to paint your art, at least in the American West, and especially where we're at in these days. Climbing at its core, a dirtbag sport, rejects the mainstream. But climbing is mainstream nowadays, and we're still sorting it all out. Ancient art, located in the heart of the Utah desert and the Fisher Towers, is one of the most photographed summits in the desert. It's an iconic corkscrew that winds up into the blue sky, having an unbalanced summit with room enough for only one person. It is disgustingly crowded on a busy weekend, and a testament that often as a whole, the climbing community lacks vision and skill. Why in the world will we climb behind 10 other people says something about the modern human race. Ancient art is no Mount Everest though. People aren't regularly dying because of the problems. It's simply an inconvenience. And when we were in our younger 20s, we saw no problem getting behind several parties and starting up. It was two tent, Tim and I, leisurely climbing the stolen chimney behind several other parties. We were far from wise. No young climber is ever wise. But we were willing to climb slowly, and we really wanted to stand on that corkscrew summit. So we waited in line, and eventually after an hour, it was our turn to start up. 
Two Tent led the first part. He was like a zen machine. You knew he would get the job done with ease and style. I belayed and simply fed out the rope as he motored up the pitch. As he finished and built the belay, a character emerged out of nowhere. Hey, you guys mind if I pass you? He asked. Slightly stoned, we were already laughing about another incident that had just happened when one of the parties rappelled down and dropped a rope on a climber coming up. The woman started freaking out, yelling, I'm down here! I'm down here! As if certain death and doom were going to follow the rappel ropes. So we were laughing and stoned and okay with everything until this guy shows up. First of all, it was just him. He had no partner and he wanted to rope solo the route. Rope soloing is an art of the 1% in climbing, probably less than 1%. I've met a few and their prime seemed to be in their mid to late 20s. They were going through a breakup or some identity crisis. They needed to prove who they were to themselves. The Fisher Towers, the Black Canyon, and Yosemite have witnessed some impressive and partially insane rope solos. Pushing the limits with a partner is one thing, but pushing those same limits with no one but yourself to be your best friend is another. I doubt this guy was one of the proud ones. My guess is that he was so annoying he had a hard time finding steady partners. So that fateful day, his motivation to climb with no partner put him behind us and 10 other people. I don't know, I said to the guy while looking at Tim. I think we'll probably move faster than you. You have to climb each pitch twice, man. He was unfazed, but motivated to shoot to the top of the tower in the fastest possible time. Two tent built in anchor, and we climbed up to the ledge. Then we sent Tim up. Tim was in his first year of leading and moved slowly, as one often does when learning. He was in a chimney and kept climbing further and further in it for security. Solo guy came up and forcefully built his anchor using the same bolts we were clipped to. He quickly rappelled down and cleaned all of his gear, moving efficiently, but still annoyingly. When he was back up at our ledge, Tim was still deep in the chimney, moving slowly. Fear and lack of experience can make time stand still for the leader, gripped, thinking the injury might be one move away. With Solo Guy back at our anchor, Two Tent and I were just laughing at his presence. When he announced, he can't stand it anymore, he's climbing. Tired of his company, we just let him go, and he started up the chimney, with Tim still 40 feet above him. He quickly climbed to Tim, and they talked. Solo guy was spread eagle on the outside of the chimney, with Tim deeper in the chimney. You see, your first problem is your pants, Solo guy said. They're too baggy. You need to get something that fits better. We're laughing quietly to ourselves at the belay. Tim was frightened, and we didn't want to upset his nerves, and we also didn't want Solo guy to know we're making fun of him. Two Tent and I were in a world of safety, beauty, and camaraderie. Tim was scared, and perhaps learning something about pants. Solo Guy was fired up to pass as many parties as possible and to stand alone on the corkscrew summit of ancient art. Solo Guy passed Tim, awkwardly climbing the chimney spread eagle, and he's still giving advice and now addressing Tim like he's his best friend and mentor. Hey Tim, I don't mind if you clip my gear, but if you clip this one, you might die. Two Tet and I stared at each other, lost in the comedy. This one is okay though, you can clip it, Solo Guy said. Solo Guy finally left our sight and Tim climbed up slowly. Then Solo Guy came down to clean his gear, giving more advice to Tim, and then he went back up. Tim and him arrived at the next anchor near the same time, and he brought us up. We arrived at the ledge, only to look to see Solo Guy passing more and more parties, surely annoying others as much as he annoyed us. We arrived at the ledge, only to look up to see Solo Guy passing more parties, surely annoying others as much as he annoyed us. At the ledge, we had more company, a guy and a girl, the girl being the one who was frantically yelling earlier. 
Here's another phenomenon in the modern climbing world. Guy learns to climb. Guy wants to impress girl. Guy takes girl climbing. Guy is unsafe and gets girl in over her head. Girl has meltdown. Fighting ensues and the echoes throughout the climbing area for all to hear. This is one of those situations. I can imagine a scenario where the roles were reversed, but the old saying, the women are smarter, speaks for itself. Most of us are still cavemen. We introduced ourselves and so did they. They rappelled back to the ground and we had a second of solitude. The main feature unfolded before us in the last pitch, a small walkway, a diving board width, leading up to a 30-foot corkscrew-looking feature winding around to the summit. A thousand feet of air beneath you in the classic Red Rock Old West desert landscape, but this is the New West. Climbing on the feature, it seems like something that's going to fall off one day, destined to be part of the boulders and bushes and trees below. Probably would scare the shit out of some rabbit frantically running around on the desert floor for food, safety, or sex. The phrase fucking like rabbits is said all the time, but all my days in the wild, I've yet to see it. Maybe I'm just not looking at the right time. Maybe the rabbits are more discreet than we give them credit for. Back up at a thousand feet, we finally had the tower to ourselves. Two tent led, weaving the rope up the corkscrew summit like a spider, carefully, with ease. He stood on top, and when he stood on top, he looked comfortable. When I went up on top rope, I stood on top and immediately climbed back down. The top was slanted, and I felt like any sudden movement meant I was either going to fall off or the tower was going to fall down. And what if it did? Would I survive? Would I be that guy who was on ancient art when it fell down? It didn't. It still stands to this day, although just last year, the Cobra, an often climbed shorter tower in the Fisher Towers, did just that. It fell to the ground. No word on rabbit fatalities. Two tent, Tim and I, the ninth, tenth, and eleven people to stand on that little guy that day, rappelled back to the ground, only to find eight more people lined up like they were at Disney World. A couple seasons later, Tim and I returned with Jared to repeat the climb. It was slightly less crowded and no rope soloists in sight. At the diving board feature on the way to the summit, we made fun of Jared while he humped across it, beached whale style, and we were trying to take a photo of him. He jokingly swiped for the camera, a disposable one, still in the pre-digital camera era here, and it fell out of Tim's hands. We watched that thing fall a thousand feet, like a slow motion movie, slowly, slowly falling back to the desert floor. Bummed that we would be losing some shots from a great trip, we tried in vain to find the camera as we hiked back down the trail. Tim became convinced that someone else had picked up the camera and he ran down a family who was hiking. He was gone for 20 minutes, so we just sat there, blazing in the desert sun, ready for Tim to come back so we could go drink beer and eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Then, we saw Tim on the horizon, hands in air. I found the camera! It was a glorious moment, and when I took the camera in to process the photos, what do you know, the very last photo, the family had taken a photo of their kid, sunglasses tilted, hat brim leading to the left, posing like a hip-hopper, the photo before that was Jared, humping along the diving board, that delicate little summit behind him. When the days you dream about arrive, it's often different than you imagined. Graduating from college was spent in a daze of alcohol and celebration. I made a foolish speech at the dinner party following, and that night I cuddled up with the toilet, puking, a hellish experience that began a dark ages of sorts. I had to come of age again. 
All I wanted to be was a climber. I knew I liked to write as well, but I lacked the discipline that a writer needs. When I would write, I would bask in the glory of a published article for far too long. I graduated college and wanted to be a climbing bum. That much I knew. I went back to Yosemite with the thought that perhaps I could live there and just climb. Surviving as a dirtbag climber there took too much energy. Rest days were spent selling aluminum cans for money and developing schemes to avoid the authorities. I didn't want to hide out in the boulders because of the rangers and the bears. I was woken up in the middle of the night in Camp 4 by rangers and bears more than once. On a rest day, we went to San Francisco. We stood at Haight and Ashbury, where the hippie movement that shaped my life began. I felt nothing. We returned to Yosemite. One day, we were taking it easy and smoking weed in the boulder field behind Camp 4. A ranger smelled the weed and approached us. What are you doing back there? She said, startling us. Uh, nothing. I nervously replied while hiding the bag of weed in the palm of my hand and at the same time sliding the pipe under some leaves. It smells like you're smoking marijuana, the ranger said authoritatively. Now where is it? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I was smoking a cigarette. Uh, maybe it's that, I lied. Come on, you guys. This is going to be easier if you just give me the weed and we can take care of this, she countered. Now, how in the world this ranger never discovered the weed, I'll never know. But I talked to her with my hand closed, hiding a meager amount of marijuana in my palm. My heart beat like a thundering drum, but I was not backing down. I couldn't start my post-college life with getting in trouble for pot in a national park. We went back and forth for 10 minutes, and I held my ground, my buddy sitting there doing the same. Finally, she asked for our licenses. She noticed that we were from Gunnison. Oh, you're from Gunnison, she said excitedly. That's where I went to college. Do you know Jimmy Dunn? Well, we've heard of him, of course, but never met him, I said cautiously, surprised by her change in tone. What about Jimmy Newberry or Jim Nigro? She asked. Apparently all the great climbers of the 70s in Gunnison were named Jim. Oh, uh, yeah, actually we do, I said, starting to think we might have a way out of this. And Tom Pulaski? Yeah, we know him. We did. He was our friend's landlord. All of a sudden, at the mention of some old school names, we had a get-out-of-jail-free card. This ranger was no longer the authority for the United States government. She was our friend. All this because we knew some people in the same little forgotten corner of Colorado. Okay, guys, she said in a friendly tone. I'm going to run your licenses, and if your records are clean, you're free to go. Our records were clean. We narrowly escaped. I returned to Colorado with another Yosemite trip under my belt, but with little direction in life. Fortunately, it was summer, and having the ambition to only climb rocks and work a little to get by, that was simply enough. So that's what I did. I lived out of my truck that summer. In the winter, I moved into an apartment. That winter, with school done and no focus, I felt lost and depressed. We went to Mexico, to Potrero Chico, the famous limestone sport climbing area. It opened up another part of the world, another part of dreaming. I decided I would never spend another winter in Gunnison. I would only live there when it was warm, and I would travel North America to seek warm rocks during the long, gunny winters. But that led me back to my parents' house in Illinois after one Christmas, and I was forced to sit with myself and really think about who I was and where I was going. I lived in my parents' basement and got a short-time gig at a paper factory. 
I would save my pennies and head back to Mexico. At some point in a climber's life, the highs end and you're forced to sit with yourself. What do you truly have and where do you go from here? Since the climber collects memories and experiences, he or she often has little to show. I could fit everything I owned into my truck. Relationships with women were short. They were only around for summer vacation or I would leave on a road trip. Was I truly happy with this life? I was incomplete, I realized, but I still wanted to chase those highs. At the paper factory, I worked a night shift for minimum wage. It was incredibly humbling, but it was temporary. I knew I would not be doing this for the rest of my life. Rather, I would only do it for a few weeks. I was living rent-free at my parents, and I would be taking the money to Mexico, where it would sustain me for a reasonable amount of time. There were so many others working there to simply live, hand to mouth. I knew I was a writer then, and I knew the writer had to observe to get away from a comfortable existence and just sit and absorb like a sponge. These people in the paper factory were dirt poor. I remember one guy from the other side of the tracks, the lower class side that I certainly did not grow up in. Even in the moment, I knew I'd appreciate these days when I went to work and put paper in a box. I realized that there are millions of people in the world that go to work every day in factories, and most people probably make the best of it. So many things that we use in the modern world would have to be assembled in a factory, and I assumed it was my part to pay my dues. I knew I believed in karma and the truths of it. Plus, I had nothing else going for me. I wasn't savvy enough to get much freelance writing work. I wasn't seeking a career. I just wanted enough money to climb for a month or two. That was all that mattered. The nights that I wasn't working, I would write. I had the delusion that I could write my great American novel. I just started. No outline, no plan. I just started right into it and eventually fell into a wall. Thousands and thousands of words, and the idea just vanished in the air. Fuck, man, the life of a writer is like this, I wondered to myself. The Illinois winter was flat and white and cold. I longed for kicks and reconnected with high school friends to go to the bar with. There was nothing worth chasing in my hometown, though. Nothing for me, other than the shifts to work at the factory that eventually give me enough money to leave. I didn't tell any of my coworkers at the factory that I was a writer. Not that anyone really would have cared. I realized it's a luxury to have dreams sometimes, because certain needs have to be met to have dreams. And to write was certainly a dream. I was lacking the structure and experience to write a book yet. But I had experienced magical states of transcendence before, when I recalled a great moment outside, or when I told the story of a specific adventure, and I knew I would continue to chase that writing dream. I don't know what the other employees' dreams were. One Mexican kid told me about his path to the United States, and I told him I was saving money to go to Mexico, and he seemed to respect that. He was probably building a foundation so he could dream, or maybe his kids could dream. Getting by is hardly enough for the hungry soul. One poor black guy was talking with his other coworkers one day, and he was talking about his cousin, who was getting into trouble with simple sinning like smoking weed and such. And she's eating those expensive $7 sandwiches, he said. I knew in that moment I'd never forget those words. And I knew that I had a tremendous luxury in this life to want to be a climbing bum. Another kid who was Amish was a terrible alcoholic. I just let him talk because I was a writer and I would just study people and their odd intricacies. He said he started smoking cigarettes when he was nine and drinking when he was ten. His thing was building barns. I got ten barns, he said. Build them all. He was sad. 
My kid's going to start smoking here soon. He's six now. I'll have him drinking too. Same way I did. Damn. The saddest thing in the world is being so close to the things that could make you happy, but choosing a life of smoke and drink with little hope for greater pleasures. I wondered if my man ever worked his way in the paper factory to afford those $7 sandwiches, or how many barns the Amish guy built, and when he inflicted his son with the same sadness that he had, or if my Mexican homie built a life for himself and his family here in the United States. I knew I would never know. All I knew was I had to follow my dreams because I could, and I would. After working the paper factory and failing at my first attempt to write a book, I packed up my truck and headed to Mexico. A Craigslist hitchhiker came along and we split gas. He was terribly quiet and confused and he seemed to be addicted to something, maybe heroin. All my life, I've been shown the worst result, the saddest possible outcome, and I was somewhere in the middle. I wasn't hopelessly addicted to anything too strong. I smoked pot a little and drank a couple beers a night, and more than a couple when we really partied. But I was spared from the curse of deep addiction and darkness and all that. I dropped the hitchhiker off in Austin, Texas, visited some old college friends there for a couple days, and then drove to Mexico. I was terribly nervous to drive to Mexico all by myself. Ironically, the border patrol in Mexico put me at ease when he casually did a search of my truck. He looked into the first aid kit and joked, Coca? Cocaine? With that smile and tranquilo spirit that most Mexicans seem to have. I passed through the sketchy border town, and just a couple hours later, I was in Potrero Chico. I met Scott there, my dumpster diving amigo from college. He was on a grand tour of the climbing areas of the world, from South America to Thailand. His motivation was sky high, and immediately after I arrived, he insisted we plan out our entire month together. The life was as simple as my time at home with my parents in the paper factory, but the joys were much more divine. We lived on just a few dollars a day and subsisted on the simple diet of Mexico. Beans, rice, cheese, avocados, salsa, and sugary snacks when we were climbing. Cheap beers some nights. Sleeping in tents under the stars at the little places that Mexicans rent out to gringos like us for $3 a night. The simplest life I could have imagined brought me the most joy. Since I really didn't have a home, I wasn't homesick. We would meet other climbers and try to surround ourselves with the ones who had the best vibes and attitudes. Negativity is a curse for a climber. The town of Hidalgo on the edge of Potrero Chico is a simple place. There's a concrete factory, and the people there seem to move at a slow place. They smile and wave when you go by, call you Guero, which means blondie, even if you aren't really blonde. They still call you that because you're a gringo. There's a market once a week where you go to buy your food, and they sell everything imaginable. It's great to just people watch and realize how different things are there compared to back home. In the cliffs, they simply blow you away at first. Gray limestone walls towering up 2,000 feet into the sky. Palm trees and cactuses growing from the walls. And your purpose in life is to sustain yourself. Keep yourself healthy and climb these walls until you must return home. Sport climbing is rooted in routine and consistency. All of the roots in Potrero are bolted. A systematic difference from all the other multi-pitch climbing I'd done in the States. Ethically, it was the complete opposite of our home walls in Gunnison, like the Black Canyon. It had to be. The gear in most limestone cracks is usually worthless, so you must have the bolts. Thus, the heightened awareness of traditional climbing is not needed there. 
at least not when the bolts are close together. Naturally, catering to my ADD, I recall the driving as much as the climbing, which is probably 10 times as dangerous and way less intuitive. We climbed to Portrayal for two weeks and wanted some more adventure. We heard about an area called El Salto, which was on the other side of Monterey, the second largest city in Mexico, located just an hour from Portrero. Still in the era before smartphones here, our directions were from a Mexican climber who spoke broken English. My Spanish couldn't even be called broken. I was basically a two-year-old at talking Spanish. Scott was better, and he always did the talking when we were out in public. So there we were, in the kitchen of a hostel-like place where we were staying, getting directions scribbled out onto a piece of paper. And the directions had little information about roads or highways. Once we got out of Monterey, he was saying, Look out for the furniture store on the right. It will be closed. Just keep going four miles past the furniture store, and you'll see a series of Jesus statues for sale. That is where you will make your next turn. Getting to the hillsides, the countryside where El Salto was, involved driving through the madness that is a big Mexican city. The shoulders are not shoulders there. They are another lane. God forbid anyone tried to ride a road bike there. They would be run over in minutes. To this day, I don't know how we made it, but we did. We drove past all the landmarks that our Mexican friends suggested, and we found El Salto, way out in the hills. It was a magical place, just past a town with no phones or internet, but everything you needed to survive for a few days. We subsisted on beans, rice, avocados, and cheese, and climbed sport routes. The canyon had countless thousand-foot walls, but little development other than two crags that had overhanging sport routes. The walls were trippy, tufas that looked like mushrooms, a psychedelic vibe, and a feeling of punishment. All the climbs were above our heads, and we fell, tried again, and fell many more times. We camped in a wash with no one else except the Canadian party, who were there to experience the same thing we were there to experience. We climbed until our forearms were worthless, and then we reversed our path back to Portero Chico. Our last day in Portrero, we decided to go big. For me, climbing doesn't feel right until you give it your all. So we decided to do three routes in one day. Everything went great. It was just pure movement over stone, followed by rappelling the climb to get back where you started. 2,000 feet and 20 rappels into the day, we were on cruise control, fatigued from the climbing and subsisting on nothing but sugary Mexican snacks, when the darkness overcame us. Scott was about 60 feet below me at a rappel station when I heard him calmly shout, Hey, so there's a rattlesnake down here, a baby rattlesnake, and it just rattled at me. He spoke so calmly that it made me feel calm. I knew that baby rattlesnakes possessed the most venom of all, and I knew that if Scott were to get bitten, logistically, it would have been a nightmare to get him the necessary care. However, my happiness and my fatigue, coupled with Scott's calm demeanor, didn't reveal the seriousness of the situation. Scott repelled past the rattler, without incident, and then I had to go down. Blessed with the ignorance of the night, I didn't see the little guy and I made it safely to the next rappel anchor. That night, we celebrated our big day with one big beer, a coquama, and a proper meal. The next morning, I was filled with satisfaction, filled with the feeling that I couldn't climb that day, even if I wanted to. I know a lot of my so-called ADD is channeled into climbing. My angst can be dissipated. There was little time to savor it, though. Scott was heading to the airport that afternoon for Thailand, and I was headed back to the States. I have to admit that I was chasing the climbing high. I wanted to feel that frequently and often, and I drove all over to find it. With any highs, there are lows. Being a dirtbag climber, it's the loneliness of the road. At least for me, we all have our own demons. 
I was riding high out of Mexico, back into Texas, but the flat roads of Texas and Oklahoma had a way of killing the high. Of course, I just had to find the next high. I stopped off in Gunnison, and it was still in the throes of winter. Gunny couldn't provide me with the fix I needed, so I kept moving, kept pumping gas into the truck, and ended up in the Utah desert. I climbed an Indian Creek for a while, and then had the appetite for something bigger. Zion was the destination. A sandstone Yosemite of sorts. The kind of place where I would feed my dreams, and it would give me the fix I needed. That is episode 10 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from The Climbing Zine. Um, fun little antidote to that story in Yosemite. I feel like back in the day, I don't know if it's still this way, because um, I, know, I know it's still, I think weed's still illegal in national parks, but people, someone would always get busted for like smoking in the boulders and the rangers there. Back in the day, I don't know if it's still the same. I know things have gotten a lot better between climbers and rangers, but they would just like be waiting for you to smoke weed or spying on you with <laughs> glasses and kind of a weird scene, which eventually just made me tired of it. Um, even though Yosemite is one of my truly favorite places on the planet. Um, but I got to meet Jimmy Dunn a few years ago at a slideshow I was doing in Colorado Springs, a presentation. And I was actually talking about that same book. And so I, I read that passage where uh, name dropping him got us out of the ticket with the ranger and he was pretty stoked on it. Um, and then as you can see, Jimmy... Um, Jimmy and I have become friends, and he's also contributed some amazing photos um, to the zine, and he's on the cover of the Climbing Zine book, which recently came out, and Jimmy's just been a great part of the Climbing Zine, and he is seriously the nicest, sweetest guy in the world, and even, I think he's around uh, 70 or 71 now, actually. He's, we're exactly 30, day, or 30 years apart. Jimmy and I are exactly 30 years apart. And uh, his birthday and I are, are two days apart as well. So we're kind of just kindred spirits. But I thought that was a pretty cool way to be able to tell him about that incident that took place, you know, 15 years before we were able to have that conversation. You can support us by going to our show notes and uh, supporting us on Patreon or by subscribing to The Climbing Zine. You can also pick up a copy of American Climber at our online store, which is also in the show notes. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. Music tracks come courtesy of Ketza and Simon Panrucker. And I'm Luke Mihal, coming at you from beautiful Durango, Colorado. Peace. <laughs>